Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, the podcast on how technologies are healing healthcare around the world. Have you ever heard the joke that anesthetists are really good at Sudoku because they don't do much else during surgeries? Well, in reality, as it turns out, they have a lot more work and personal contact with patients as one would assume without an insight. I'm your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and my guest in today's episode is Chris Johnson, children's anesthetist with 30 years of experience in clinical practice. A few years ago, Chris was the medical lead for the healthcare IT transformation of the Perth Children's Hospital when the institution moved into a new building. So we're not going to focus on anesthesiology too much, but on electronic health records and change management. You see, while the implementation of an EHR and robotic pharmacy system took several years of meticulous planning, the EHR in the Perth Children's Hospital was not implemented in the end. So today's story is a lesson about how sometimes, even when process transformation is done by the book, the final change does not happen. Chris also talks about lessons learned when traveling to pediatric facilities in the United States and UK and mentions good healthcare IT practices in Denmark. For many healthcare specialists working in the public systems, visiting hospitals in the US can quickly feel like traveling to the future, at least in the infrastructural sense. While facilities in the US have a lot of amenities for the patients and offer high-tech comfort and options, public system facilities don't reinvent themselves very much, and when it comes to IT, Paper is often the main information carrier for everything, electronic records and medication management. This is, unfortunately, also the case in Perth Children's Hospital. But before all that, I had to start with kangaroos again, the same way as in episode 19, where clinical pharmacist Lea Diaz talked about pharmacy robotics. You can find the direct link to that show in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, do subscribe to the show to be notified about all the upcoming episodes when they are released. Do leave a rating or a review in iTunes, as this will help other interested in digital health find the show as well. Now back to Australia. Have you ever had a kangaroo? Have you ever ate a kangaroo? So kangaroo um, meat is available in supermarkets across Australia. It's growing in popularity. The beauty of kangaroo is that it it's not an introduced species. So it's a species that's been in harmony with the landscape for hundreds of thousands of years. The kangaroo paw doesn't compress the earth or cause erosion, unlike the hooves of cattle, sheep and goats. Um, kangaroo's diet is um, native plants, so it's in balance. So the kangaroo ecologically is not a damaging species. But is it any good? How does it taste? Ah, it, well, it, it, it's an acquired taste. It's a very low-fat meat, so it needs to be cooked very carefully. It needs to be marinated. It's good as mince. It's fantastic as mince. And with, with care and uh, a bit of learning, it's actually a lovely thing. Kangaroo fillet 
um, as a steak once it's been marinated and cooked carefully is lovely. The other thing about kangaroo is that it's not farmed. It's uh, caught in the wild, so it's sustainably caught. Um, The kangaroo is shot, so it doesn't involve transport to abattoirs, all the stresses on animals. So it's ecologically sustainable, it's environmentally friendly, and it's ethically, I think, a a good meat to eat. Uh, Yeah, there's two times as many kangaroos in Australia than there's people. So you've got 40 million against 20 million. Yeah, and uh, they, they really truly are everywhere. Do people keep them as pets as well? Uh, well, yes, we've got uh, friends in the country who look after orphan kangaroos and, and bring them up. You've been a children's anesthetist for 30 years now, so I wanted to start with a brief clarification on what an anesthetist does. The general public knows that there's three types of anesthesia, general, regional or local, and then there's sedation. But uh, how does your work look in practice? How much direct impersonal communication does an anesthetist have with a patient? Well, the answer is, is, is a lot. Anesthesia is considered as one of 10 great advances within medicine. You know, the capacity to render somebody unconscious for painful procedures is truly a miracle. It also involves a patient or a parent handing over a child uh, to somebody who's going to render the person unconscious and do something that has been associated with a significant mortality in the past. In other words, it involves a great deal of trust particularly in the paediatric setting where you've, you know, parental anxiety around handing over a child is, is pretty huge. A lot of the more informed parents are mostly concerned about the whole business of anaesthesia. In fact, many, of, many adolescent children will tell you that their biggest fear is the fear of not waking up. So a lot of my role is around talking to parents, giving them information, gaining their trust, gaining the trust of the children, the hardest part of the job is, in fact, the direct interaction with, with people. So what, what do you reply when, when people say that they're afraid they're not going to wake up? Oh, I, it depends a little on the, on the child, but I, I, often, I often use humour. Uh, if you can get people laughing with you, they, they relax. So I might say something like, well, you know, I don't want to be on the front page of the papers. And you know, often that'll make them laugh. And then you say, look, I've put 50,000 children to sleep in my career so far and they've all woken up so I don't see how you're going to be any different. It's as much as anything, it's not what you say, it's how you behave towards them. If people have made their minds up that something's going to, something bad's going to happen, it's very hard to persuade them out of that position by logic. You've got to use other techniques. I think colleges are starting to understand that communication and some basic training in psychology of of human communication and approaches to parents are really, really important. You learn it over over your career, but you never actually get formally taught these things. What do you do in the course of the operation? Once the child's asleep, obviously I'm sitting there right with the child, recording, administering medications as required, keeping an eye on things, and you know, obviously backed up with monitoring that are looking at blood pressure, oxygen saturations, all of those things. So we're there in the case of anything going awry, we're ready to manage it straight away. So it, it requires a high degree of concentration for a long period of time. And in the back of your mind, giving anesthesia, there's always this thing of what could go wrong. There are very, very rare, catastrophic, unpredictable things that can happen. Uh, that can happen to anyone in any aspect of life, like a car accident. But with anesthesia, you're giving life-threatening drugs. You know, you're giving intravenous drugs that could cause a major allergic reaction, there, there are wild cards out there, so they're always just sitting in the back of your mind. So you can't do more than one surgery per, uh, at the same time? No, you're there, one-to-one care. Um, 
in the United States, they have nurse anaesthetists or um, and with an anaesthetist attending anaesthetist running three or four theatres. That seems to work pretty well. But uh, in Australia, it's one-to-one. Where do you see the latest technologies in practice uh, in your field? So there's um, artificial intelligence, there's big data, there's voice recognition and IoT devices. And in terms of uh, anesthesiology, uh, what's mentioned is that perhaps with precision dosing uh, and big data, some things could be automated. Look, the... The, the immediate obvious thing is the manual charting, manual recording of events. The better hospitals already do that automatically, you know, but they're still, those systems are still in their infancy. In other words, it should be possible to have a paperless anesthesia chart where all the data is taken off the, off the monitors and it should be possible to add stuff through voice recognition. That, that, that's ideal. I'd, I'd love to see that. In terms of Big data, there's some very interesting stuff coming out of a couple of centres in the United States where they've looked at outcomes and with the, the capacity to collect a lot more data electronically around blood pressure fluctuations, changes during the anaesthesia, they've been able to look at events intraoperatively and link them with post-operative events like renal failure. Those sorts of things are starting to come out. So collecting the big data and using it to predict outcomes is, is, is well and truly on the way already. And it will be the way of the future. Closed feedback loops, those sorts of things have been played around with for a while. And once we, once we have a really good measure of depth of anaesthesia, in other words, once we've got a really good measure that tells us the patient, how asleep the patient is, and we don't really have that yet, once we've got that, you can apply that to closed feedback loops for administration of drugs. That will happen. But we need a measure, a good measure of... Um, of the Goldilocks zone in anaesthesia, not to asleep, but just right. Uh, apart from anesthesiology, um, you're also interested in healthcare IT. Where does that uh, interest come from? It came from the initial planning process for, the, for our new children's hospital. It started in about 2009. Uh, I was then I was chair of the uh, second largest division in the hospital, which is the surgical services division through working with a consultancy group from the United States. I got involved in pharmacy automation, looking at some of the trends in the United States. And out of that, it became obvious that the electronic medical record was an essential part of a modern hospital. So from about 2012, I started to reach out to and visit a number of uh, children's hospitals around the world. And my eyes basically fell open to what needed to be done. I think I visited uh, Boston Children's Hospital in um, 2012, and that really was the first of the eye-openers. They had you know, extensive digital medical records. They'd link them in with um, data collection. And electronic prescribing was the other thing linked in with their uh, pharmacy automation processes and, of course, um, extensive clinical decision support. 2013, I visited uh, NHS Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, and at that point they were rolling out an electronic med- medical record from uh, the vendor Epic. That process made me realise that you had to look not at a not at a um, a multiple vendor system. You really needed a single vendor system for your core clinical uh, data sets. And then, uh, how did you get involved uh, in the? How did you became a medical lead for the first children's hospital tender for the EMR, which ran between 2013 and 2016? I, I was chair of surgical services, so it's one of the, the three big divisions in the hospital. So 
from that position, I became involved in in the in the planning for the hospital. Um, having done the technologically complex planning around the perioperative area, I sort of naturally fell into the complex planning around the automation of the medications process. And from that, I suppose, fell logically into developing and, and uh, advancing the electronic medical record. You know, I've had a lifetime of having to deal with paper and the frustrations of dealing with the physical paper electronic uh, physical paper record. And then after a couple of visits, particularly to the Children's Hospital in Boston in 2012, the, the shades fell away from my eyes. It became obvious what, what, what one should do. Uh, was everything done on paper uh, up until then in your hospital? Pretty much. We was level two, two and a half perhaps. You know, we had some automation in radiology. Our PAX-RIS system was online and uh, uh, we had some results systems electronically, but no electronic medical record as such, no electronic prescribing, no decision support. How did the preparations for the tender go? Because it was a huge project. It was an enormous project. That was the uh, medical lead for that project. I realized very early on that this was not so much a technological thing as a process of change management. And on that basis, I made very certain that we had a very good clinical engagement across the entire hospital. So I'd identified a number of people who would be open to change and clinical leads in their areas, and we made sure that they were deeply engaged. When we came to writing the clinical requirements for the system, we wrote them and then sent them out I made absolutely certain that the requirements for the electronic medical record went out to the users, the end users, to look at. And then when we came to evaluating the individual tender um, responses, I made absolutely certain that all of the clinical areas were able to evaluate them and give feedback. So it was important that the people who are going to be most changed were involved in the process. So if you could count how many people were involved in this uh process so in the preparation of the requirements in checking the requirements it would have been oh, probably 40 or 50 of the lead clinical staff that included junior doctors included nurses it included pharmacy so basically you did it by the book how, how long did it take how much time did you need to check in with everyone the, t- the tender process and the evaluation of the tender probably took place over about six months. And when when the individual vendors came to give their presentations, we made sure that everyone from the, each of the areas was there to watch the, watch the presentation and to report. The ultimate decision was made by an executive board, but it was based on um, very carefully gardened feedback from the clinical end users. So from the beginning of the decision that the hospital needs an electronic health record system to the final decision to, to who you're going to choose, who the vendor is going to be, how many years did that take? So that, the thing, thing went over just a little over two years. The electronic medical record tender was tied up with a transition business case. In other words, it was a, a clinical transformation change management project. Uh, the electronic medical tender was only, funding-wise, was only about 25% of the total budget. What was the rest of the 75% of the budget? That was around clinical process change, change management, new efficiencies in the hospital. The, the key driver for the whole transition business case was around patient safety and, in particular, around patient safety with medications. So at 
At the same time, you were uh, changing the medication management process with the robot uh, installed in the pharmacy alongside choosing the EMR, right? Yep. And the, the processes were all linked in, but the driver, the ultimate driver was patient safety. And then in the end, was the, the rollout of the EMR successful? The pharmacy automation chain uh, and the whole process of automation of medications management has been partly successful. We installed, we ordered, attended for and ordered and installed a unit dose robot. In other words, each, each and every single dose of medication for each patient is prepared beforehand and dated so that, it, you know, the eight o'clock dose of this drug is actually physically differentiated from the 10 o'clock dose, which is the same drug, same dose, but they're, they're, they're different, if you see what I mean. In other words, you can plan the entire 24-hour cycle of drugs for every patient. That robot is very, very was very, very dependent on the ability to install some uh, critical parts of the electronic medical record. So the functionality of that robot hasn't been achieved yet, but it's sitting there and ready to go. And the EMR? Uh, the process was abandoned in early 2016. Why? It's a complex, complex area, but the build, the physical build of the hospital was delayed um, from, from a whole range of issues related to planning, building. Uh, so the hospitals opened in the end two and a bit years later than it should have. So we didn't actually have the physical space in which we were supposed to be rolling out an electronic medical record. And it would have been very difficult to roll it out in the existing building. You know, it doesn't even have a Wi-Fi network. Mm -hmm. There are a number of other political and personality issues involved, but ultimately the decision was made to not proceed with the whole transition business case or the electronic medical record. So we just continued with paper. And the limited electronic supports that have been available in WA Health, yeah. So what's used now? Are you still on paper? We're still on paper. We have no electronic medical record as such. We have a scanned uh, solution for storage of records that does actually go to the My Health, My Health Record, the national process. We have some limited clinical decision support. We have some, as I said, radiology is paperless. We have some limited electronic um, uh, test ordering and uh, acknowledgement. But uh, no clinical decision, no major clinical decision support, no electronic prescribing, and no digital atomic medical record. Are there any plans for the future on when that could be installed? There are plans. Yes, there's there's been a, a, a there have been a number of significant reviews of the approach that WA Health has taken to IT. Uh, there are also movements from within a number of hospitals to independently uh, go down the path of seeking an electronic medical record just for that hospital, an electronic medical record just for that hospital. So there are things happening. Um, the state's just gone through a significant economic contraction, uh, which is with some budgetary issues. That's also had an effect. Do you think it's going to be better or easier now? So how can you, like, what measurements are being taken to prevent uh, from the story in 2016 happening again? Because you did everything right, at least, you know, according to, to guidelines. Like you involved the users, you did the testing, but in the end rollout didn't happen. I think that the failure of the, the EMR process has 
awoken some concern and a number of people have noted uh, the factors that caused it to fail. So some of the factors are still in operation, but I think the chances of success next time around are less dependent on external factors and more dependent, if, if probably even more so than before, on the capacity of the organisation to adapt to change. The, the hospital has undergone substantial change, moving to a new building, getting used to processes, and it, it, healthcare doesn't, doesn't deal with change that well. As I said at the beginning, this is really a change management project. And I think one of the reasons it failed last time was the inability to actually really get the change management happening. It's too easy to revert to the old ways of doing stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredibly hard. But um, apart from using the paper, the new building and the new hospital seems very fancy based on the description. You've got 75% of single rooms, a parent bed in each uh, standard inpatient room, parent lounges, green spaces, recreational areas, retail food outlets, entertainment facilities. Um, I thought that was really good. Um, what kind of other hospitals did you see, you know, when you were traveling around uh, the world? I have to give a disclaimer here that I resigned from WA Health a little over a year ago. So I'm peripherally involved in some stuff, but I'm not an employee. I, for various reasons, chose to leave WA Health at a time when it was not a healthy organization. The building itself, from all accounts, patients love it. It is a very nice space to be in, and it's certainly got very good facilities for parents and children. I, I have my particular views, and that's that you can still have those good spaces for parents and children, but you don't necessarily have to have an architectural marvel. If you look at the children's hospitals in the United States or somewhere like Boston or the other place where I did a sabbatical in 2016 was Evelina, which is the NHS Trust Children's Hospital associated with the Guy's St Thomas's Network in central London. That was uh, a building which was touted at the time as being um, an architectural ma masterpiece where they'd asked children for input into the design. And that process can go a little too far to the point where it starts to affect the efficiency of the building. I'm a little bit more of a utilitarian. I like Boston where the hospital is a cube with all of the functionality inside it and then the, the patient amenity bits are tacked on. Our hospital has a very, very large atrium, for instance. Um, it's very attractive to look at, but it is in another, in another way it's a wasted space and it also creates a barrier to the direct transport between two between areas. And the other thing about atria, of course, is that they impose fairly large heating and cooling costs. And there, there is a, a body of opinion now in an Australian hospital planning design that says that you should not consider atria in your hospitals because of those reasons. The the architecture and the structure of a hospital environment is changing, especially in the last years with the emphasis on, on patient centricity. But um, I agree that perhaps, um, you know, achieving friendliness inside the hospital and uh, uh, achieving uh, an environment where um, people are not stressed out by the, their surrounding uh, when they arrive already can be designed in 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 a better way. Yeah, and it, it's a balance between the two. But I mean, uh, in, overall, it, the new hospital is a really nice space. So it's it's a welcoming space. It's got lots of nice green areas, lots of recreational areas. It's it's very it is very family family friendly. 
But uh, it's that balance between functionality and being a welcoming space, and it, it's very hard to get right. You mentioned before the My Health Record System, which is the National Electronic Health Record System, and it was uh, it drew a lot of media attention last year because and in the beginning it was said that all governmental agencies will be allowed to see medical data. By the end of 2018, things changed. Uh, regulation was uh, stricken, and now health data can only be shared with other institutions in case of a court order or patient-specific consent. Uh, can you share maybe your view uh, around uh, how has the excitement or rage around the project changed by, by now? It's been an interesting process. Um, as you're probably aware, um, an attempt was made to do this same sort of thing in the United Kingdom in 2012. The Main question that I have is around the the physical architecture of the My Health Record, which is really a, a central data repository. Uh, it, it's working on that older way of thinking about things. So if, as soon as you have a central data repository, you've got a honeypot um, of data that people will be interested in getting to either legally or illegally. The My Health Record group are now in discuss active discussion with um, a number of people who suggested alternative architecture because. Really, if you look at what they're trying to achieve, they're trying to uh, make the data, the right sort of data flow to the right health practitioners. So it's not necessarily about having a central data repository. It's about the data from a GP being able to go to an occupational therapist in the community. So the data doesn't have to come from a central source. It can go direct from the person creating the data to the person who needs the data. I think they're thinking about a different way of architecture. Um, and the other thing, of course, which is um, inequities in access, is the whole process of, of patient-centric medical records. In other words, the patient being the owner and the, the repository for their own medical records, obviously on a smartphone. And I'm sure you're aware of some of the work that Apple is doing with some of the bigger healthcare centres in the United States around exactly those sorts of things. I, I believe that within the next five to seven years, I'll be able to have my entire medical record on my own phone. I think uh, the project is uh, pretty amazing in the sense that Australia does have 20 million people and it's a big country. Uh, so you've got potential infrastructure issues and access issues. And Europe, for example, has successful e-health stories But uh, it's much different if you're trying to implement a solution with a 2 million population or Estonia has 1.3 million people than 20 million or even 300 million. The country that I think has done, done it well uh, is Denmark, in fact, in, the, in, the, um, in Europe. I mean, the, the whole thing about Denmark is that you have your social security number, which is linked directly to your health record and to your educational record. Although you have privacy, I think they, they've, they don't see the privacy issue as being such a big deal. Uh, are you aware of that system in Denmark? It's still on my uh, to-do or to-research list. I think that they've done it really quite sensibly and well. And, um, for instance, practical application of that is that there's, there have been concerns about the effects of anaesthesia on the developing brain and anaesthesia for you know, some infants, whether that has any effect on future outcomes in education. And a colleague of mine was able to, in a Danish colleague, to link the health records and the 
records for anaesthesia in early life directly with the educational outcomes at 18. Now, they've got the capacity to do that sort of stuff. My health yeah. record in Australia is, 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 is very, currently very limited. One of the difficulties that they're having is um, penetration into, the, into people's consciousness. In other words, the awareness of my health record hasn't really sunk in for the majority of Australians. When, when they've been surveyed, most of, a high proportion of people are unaware of the whole project. For that reason, they don't see it as being relevant to them. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, I was looking at the statistics and in September, 6.2 million people enrolled in the project and by December, 6.5 million. The number of people enrolling is increasing very slowly. Yes, yeah. There's not a great deal of awareness and most people don't see any, any benefit to them from, from the process. I guess until you're not uh, deeply in healthcare or healthcare IT, you don't uh, see how terrible it is when the systems are not connected among uh, each other. I was uh, shocked to learn that, for example, in the UK, because the primary care and the secondary care are not connected, um, a pharmacist, uh, upon arrival of a patient in a hospital, needs 24 hours to do the medication reconciliation, which means that in order to get the full list of medications that the patient is taking, he has to physically call the patient's pharmacy and the GP and other sources that he can think of just to make sure that he has the right list of patient's um, drugs. Yes. Now, the responses to that that gap have been quite interesting. We, we have a, a friend, an old friend, who's undergone substantial treatment for breast cancer here in Australia. She's been using a, a commercially available app that stores all of her records related to her treatment on her phone. So she controls the data, she makes sure it's up to date, and it's immediately available to anyone she wants to send it to. It tracks her entire treatment for breast cancer, all of her medications, where she is, all of her scans, uh, the whole lot. So she can just take it to her general practitioner or when she goes to hospital, just show it. Is that app in any way connected to the hospital systems or healthcare providers that she's involved with, or is it just uh, on her and her manual input of data? I think it, it, it allows downloading of information from, from hospitals and pro providers. The problem in, in Australia is that many of the hospitals don't have the information electronically in a, capacity, in a form that can be downloaded. So some of her input has been manual. But as, as uh, hospitals yeah. digitise, that data should be available. And I, I, I really think that's the way it's going to go. Yeah, we all wish as patients to have all our data um, in one place so you don't have to repeat yourself when you visit various providers. And the other, other thing around data and data security that I noticed, uh, particularly when I looked at um, Cambridge NHS Trust in the United Kingdom, they rolled out an EPIC system um, in 2013-14 and now are considered to be the most digitally advanced hospital in the NHS. They have all of their data, all of their data comes in as atomic data, so it's digitised. It, everything, everything that comes in through the system is fed in through, in a completely anonymised fashion, through to the Cambridge um, University Medical School. So in their first year of operation, this is a 2,500-bed hospital, their digitised data for their patients amounted to only 1.6 terabytes of data. So if you truly digitised your hospital, the data load is very low. Did you do any research on how they did that, the digitisation? 
I've got some detailed notes on, how, on what they're doing, but that basically they're feeding in Cambridge is Cambridge is the um, southeast England's centre for their hundred thousand genome project. So they're they're feeding in a whole bunch of data around patient outcomes, particularly in patients with cancer and uh, rare diseases. Uh, but they've they've got ev- they've got all of the data on you know several million blood tests, um, medication administrations, you know outcome type data. They've done it in an anonymized fashion so that that data can't be tracked back to patients. So it's, it's, they've done it really, really well. I guess that's the way to go. Um, in general, how would you describe the Australian healthcare system? What's your experience based on your long-term experiences with other healthcare systems? The health outcomes here um, are good for the amount of expenditure. We spend you know, around about 10% of our gross domestic product on health. We have um, generally better health outcomes than, say, the United States. We we have a system where we have both a public and a private sector. So Medicare is the fallback position for most people. That's a public hospital healthcare system. We also have a fairly extensive private healthcare system for people with private health insurance. And to a certain extent, the private Uh, system is subsidized from the public purse. How well does it work? Well, the public system, the Medicare system was put together in 1974, so it's relatively recent. The difficulties are the same as with every public system in terms of access and wait lists, which, you know, access and wait list is not a problem if you're paying for the service in the private sector. So there's Uh still a degree of inequity. If you look at the combined spend on private and public healthcare in Australia, it's substantial and um, this is my personal thoughts which are at the end of a long career in health i suspect that the best healthcare systems in the world are completely public as the private sector develops it, it, it has the potential to become a lot better than the public sector so you end up with a two-tier system i don't think that's an ideal uh, situation to be honest if all of the funds in health currently spent in Australia went into the public sector, I think it would be a very good system. You know, there's some structural issues with it, but um, it's not a bad way to go. That, that's a fairly radical thing to think. But looking at the systems around the world, the NHS has some of the very best and some of some pretty awful areas as well. But the very best of the NHS is very good. It's it's true. I agree. Public systems usually have better outcomes or at least um, better access to healthcare in general. However, the private sector does drive uh, innovation more. The minute the, the concept of profit comes into healthcare, you in, you skew you skew your drivers, and the American system is a great example of that. They've ended up with what eighteen sixteen eighteen percent of their gross national product going on health um, with poor outcomes and, and um, inequities in access. As soon as the profit motive comes in, it, it, it just introduces some really difficult issues. And it comes, it comes to the heart of the issue of what healthcare should be about. Again, after a lifetime of working in both systems, really the most important thing is that it's about health outcomes. It's not about profit. This was the 28th episode of Faces of Digital Health. The next one will be released in two weeks. Stay tuned.